and welcome back to 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Craig Johnson. This week we got some news from the United States and Brazil, and also a two-first see you in hell that's two dead right-wingers, one from South Africa and one from Argentina. In the United States, we have the rise of what are being called active clubs. Um, these are sort of like male-oriented MMA fighting groups. Um, that's at least what they want you to believe that they are. In reality, they are re- rebranding of a right-wing neo-Nazi white supremacist type movement called the Rise Above Movement, uh, which is one of these sort of like older generations of neo-Nazi white supremacist organization uh, predating the alt-right. The founder of the organization, a man named Rundo, uh, is interested in using this kind of rebranding in order to get uh, the the network that he was a part of, RAM, uh, to be uh, more connected with the network of new right-wing organizations, for example, the Proud Boys, which also, of course, ostensibly are nothing but a drinking club or a fighting club or a men's group. Um, This is a frame that a lot of right-wing organizations use in order to hide from the kind of attention that they really wither under. Uh, These active clubs are being founded and spreading throughout the United States. Uh, It's something to be paying attention to. Furthermore, in the United States, we have some more of the sort of, like, legal drama that comes with the rise of fascism. Uh, Specifically, we have some recent interviews and information indicating uh, that Steve Bannon was apparently very much in on Trump's January 6th activity, uh, that he was in contact with the president on the day, um, and that he specifically advocated that the president use the January 6th rally and subsequent coup attempt uh, in an attempt to delegitimize the coming Biden presidency. This, of course, worked. Uh, This is exactly what Trump supporters say about the Biden administration, that it's illegitimate. And they use the function of the January 6th coup uh, in order to push this narrative. Further advancing the, well, story of the January 6th coup, not the right wing's narrative, but uh, the actual legal proceedings regarding it, uh, we have a big round of subpoenas uh, from the House Select Committee on the January 6th insurrection. Uh, As noted, uh, I don't call uh, the coup an insurrection because I think it's a big confusing word that people don't use in other contexts, Uh, whereas if this happened in another country, we'd just call it a coup uh, and be done with it. In any case, this is the select committee on the January 6th investigation. Uh, This is a House committee comprised exclusively of Democrats. And of course, Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, uh, a Republican from Illinois, Liz Cheney represents uh, the Republicans in Wyoming. Uh, This is why they are the targets of uh, the Republican Party mainstream now, because they're active on this committee. Uh, The committee's purview is to investigate the nature of the attempted coup on January 6th and to try to, well, essentially to bring the power of the law behind what we already know about what happened that day. Uh, For those of you who are, you know, not particularly conversant in legal stuff, uh, or who didn't watch a lot of Law and Order or something, uh, a subpoena is essentially a uh, a legal requirement to present oneself or to present evidence uh, before a legal or deciding body. Um, I'm not a legal expert either, but that you know that's a quick and dirty definition here. Uh, so these subpoenas essentially mean that they are requiring people who they think were involved in the planning of January 6th to present evidence. 
And importantly, they are issuing these subpoenas, not just to like people who were right-wing organizers or people who were actually participants in the violence of that day. They're now moving on to issue subpoenas to people who were the Republican operatives and just like right-wing political operatives in Washington uh, who were planning that day. Uh, for example, recently, uh, there were some subpoenas issued to people who were part of, quote, dark money groups. Uh, these are sort of like organizations that do some, you know, interesting little shell games and money laundering type stuff in order to uh, get money to political supporters of theirs. Uh, some of these people were uh, involved in getting the permits for the legal part of the event uh, that preceded the actual storming of the Capitol building. Uh, so that's interesting. Uh, but more interesting, in my opinion, uh, is that earlier this week, we saw some subpoenas issued to a lot of former Trump staffers, including two of his chiefs of staff, uh, Meadows and Steve Bannon. Uh, Meadows and Bannon and uh, some other Trump uh, officials are going to testify uh, behind closed doors in mid-October. And they've also been required to hand over some documents uh, to the committee. Now, because this is going to be behind closed doors and because it's going to be happening in October, there's a little bit of uncertainty about what it is that this means. Uh, things that are very clear are that it means that the committee is getting serious about approaching uh, the actual upper echelons of Republican power in the Trump administration. That's extremely interesting. Uh, it also means that they think that these people were arguably involved in an attempt to overthrow the United States government. And I mean, like, again, if you've been listening to this podcast, if you've been paying attention, you know that it's not arguable that these people were involved. They clearly are. But what this means is that the actual government of the United States thinks that they were involved, or at least that it wants to try to prove that they were involved. That could mean criminal proceedings. Uh, that could mean criminal proceedings against people like Steve Bannon. It could even potentially mean criminal proceedings against Republican elected officials and could even mean some sort of proceedings or hearings or other reckoning with President Trump himself. Now, exactly whether or not that's going to happen, how that'll play out, we don't know yet. Um, it all depends on what kind of information these people have, how loyal they are to Trump, and how powerful Trump remains within the Republican Party and in uh, Washington in general. And speaking of... Uh, it's just clear at this point, uh, given what Trump has been saying on TV, on radio, uh, in interviews all the time, he's going to run again in 2024. Uh, specifically, he said that he's just waiting for a time to make his announcement. Now, the fact that he intends to run again in 2024 isn't really a surprise. Um, but the important part here is that this means that this is a signal. This is a signal to other Republicans that this man is still in charge of the party, even though he lost this election, and that if you turn against him, say, in a proceeding held by a House Select Committee investigating Trump's attempted coup, uh, that you might face consequences. Because what if he wins in 2024? Or even if he loses, what if his faction of the party solidifies its control and then you're shut out? Uh, for 2024 and, you know, uh, subsequent election years in the Republican Party. Um, this is a big deal. Um, and if a, if a Trump administration returns to power in 2024, uh, we could be in for possibly some of the things that people were worried about 
uh, back in 2016 that didn't happen. Uh, so we're going to have to keep paying attention to that. Outside of the United States, but continuing to talk about uh, political coups and upheavals, uh, back to Brazil, Jair Bolsonaro. Uh, Bolsonaro's presidency, again, is not doing well. Uh, it's doing, in fact, quite bad. Um, hunger and poverty have skyrocketed back to, well, way above their levels uh, when Bolsonaro took office. Um, his aid programs have collapsed. Uh, people are hungry and starving in Brazil. Um, there are also uh, going to be very likely uh, rolling blackouts in parts of Brazil, uh, which uh, Bolsonaro uh, is extremely, extremely angry about. Um, obviously, a president would be angry about this uh, if they were interested in staying in power, which Bolsonaro is. Uh, his poll numbers are dropping terribly, like precipitously. Um, at this point, he kind of doesn't really have any options aside from illegal, illicit ones, uh, which is exactly the problem. Uh, and I know that this might sound like a broken record here, but I can't stress this enough. If Bolsonaro attempts a coup in the coming year, which I think it's relatively likely that he will, um, a lot of bets are off the table. Uh, if you live in Brazil, um, I don't have to tell you about the legacy of the military dictatorship that Bolsonaro would be essentially reviving if he attempted a coup. And this would be unlike the Temer coup against uh, against Dilma Rousseff. Uh, this could potentially be a more bald-faced military government or a cooperation with a faction of the military, um, especially if he actually seeks to prevent an elected Lula from taking office. You know, there are a lot of opportunities here. In these cases, it's very possible that Brazil could experience uh, waves of political violence uh, unlike any that has, it has seen uh, since the conclusion of the last military dictatorship. If you live outside of Brazil, uh, it's, it, it's somewhat hard to remember, uh, especially for those of us who were born after uh, this wave of military governments in South America. Um, but it's very different to live in a world where uh, one of the major, major powers, like an extremely major big country, is ruled by uh, the extreme right in the way that uh, these countries were ruled um, in under military governments in South America back in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s. A different uh, regime of solidarity, a different kind of solidarity practice is necessary. Hopefully, these practices from the 60s, 70s, and 80s won't need to be revived, uh, although it's entirely possible and it's something that we have to keep paying attention to and working to prevent. Finally, I'm going to conclude this episode as I do every week with See You in Hell, a segment celebrating the deaths of prominent right-wing figures in history. As promised, this week we have a twofer, uh, that's two dead right-wingers for the price of one. Uh, the first is from South Africa. Uh, we have Johannes van Rensburg a collaborationist South Africaner. Uh, Van Rensburg was a jurist in uh, South Africa, and he was enamored of the Nazi party and of uh, Adolf Hitler. Uh, this is not particularly unusual for right-wing figures uh, throughout the, well, especially the colonized world, um, especially white people uh, in the colonized uh, world of the British. Uh, he travels to... Uh, Nazi Germany, he meets Adolf Hitler, he meets other prominent Nazis, and when he returns, 
uh, to South Africa, he founds uh, the um, Osvarandweg. My extreme and sincere apologies to speakers of either uh, Dutch or Afrikaans. Um, this is a neo-Nazi organization uh, that uh, was even too right-wing and too, uh, you know, uh, white supremacist for South African tastes, uh, which uh, really tells you something. Uh, he was in the organization up until the 1950s uh, and was vilified as such in South Africa. However, when he died, uh, he was buried with full military honors by the apartheid government, uh, which really shows you their colors if you had any doubt. So, Van Rensburg, dead this week in history, the 25th of September, 1966. We'll see you in hell. And the second dead right-winger this week is uh, Roberto Viola, a dictator in Argentina. Uh, he was the dictator of the Argentine military government in the 1970s and 80s, shortly after the similarly named but different Viola. Uh, Viola stepped down uh, as military dictator uh, due to a lot of economic turmoil and some other political factors that uh, it's not necessary to get into here. Uh, Viola was only president for a short while, uh, although he was previously a participant in the military government. Uh, he joined the presidency in 1980 and was ousted before the conclusion of 1981. Uh, in his office as the president of Argentina, he benefited significantly from the ascension of Ronald Reagan to the presidency of the United States, uh, specifically because uh, Reagan's predecessor, Jeremy Carter, uh, had been actually relatively serious about, well, human rights uh, and about uh, condemning military governments uh, that had previously been uh, allies of more right-wing figures in, uh, or more right-wing postures in United States foreign policy. Uh, Viola, however, did not get to enjoy this new position. He was ousted in a counter-coup um, by Galtieri and then imprisoned uh, after the return of democracy in 1983. Uh, he was then pardoned by President Carlos Menem uh, and was out of jail uh, in 1990, uh, only to die shortly thereafter this week in history, the 30th of September, 1994. Uh, so, Viola, we will see you in hell. All right, that was 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Craig Johnson, thanking Sleepy Kitty Arts and Sleepy Kitty Music for our intro, outro, and graphics. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like, share, and subscribe. Please leave comments. Please uh, leave reviews on whatever it is that you're listening to this on. If you really enjoy the podcast, check out my Patreon at patreon.com slash 15 minutes of fascism. That's 15 minutes of fascism, all one word. Uh, we got some Patreon exclusive content up there right now. We'll have some more next week. Uh, these are stories about my personal encounters uh, studying fascism in South America and Europe. And if you want to get in touch with me, uh, make a correction, argue with me about something that I said, uh, please either find me on Twitter at hist of the right or on Gmail at 15 minutes of fascism at gmail.com. All right, I'll talk to you next week. Bye.